Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome back to another edition of TV Show and Tell, the television podcast that refreshes the parts that other podcasts don't reach. I'm David Bodicombe. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, an international consultant known as the Format Doctor. And in today's episode, we'll see if you've got what it takes to be an executive producer. We'll also ask what's the best way to expand your network of TV contacts and Justin's on location, where he was lucky enough to secure an interview with the Danish TV executive Pierre Marcard, who'd co-developed Expedition Robinson, a format which we know today as Survivor. But first, it's time for the catch-up. So what TV industry news have you got to download, Justin? The first thing that I've picked up, as many people have, I'm sure, is the imminent return of Challenge Annika the format in which Annika Rice visits communities that have a, an issue or a need, and she rounds up local tradespeople to help solve their problem in some way. Very feel-good show. It originally ran on BBC between 1989 and 1995. There were a couple of specials, 2006-2007 on ITV, but this is the first time it's coming back for a full season on, on Channel 5 as opposed to BBC. I am terrified of this remake, I have to be honest with you, <laughs> because I always used to cry in the bit in the titles when the hedgehogs used to get their bridge, <laughs> and always got to me for some reason. I don't know why, but hoping that the title is going to be slightly less tear-jerking for me. Mm. I'm hoping that they go back to its roots a little bit, because when it began, Annie would run around and she'd talk to real tradespeople and local plumbers and builders and and decorators. And it really was a, a show where the community was uh, empowered. In the later series, she seemed to mostly talk to very, very large DIY retailers who would provide everything. And she'd ring up and say, can I have everything? And they'd say, yes, of course. And then a massive Pantechnican turned up. So it began to feel like she wasn't really being challenged. So I hope they go back to that sort of community-based support. I think I remember seeing an interview with one of the original producers about how on earth did they get 15 tonnes of steel frame to a location within a few hours. And they basically admitted that most of the big building blocks of stuff were pre-arranged. Mm. And they just sort of gave her a list of phone numbers and said, you know, ring these people up and they'll, they'll come and supply the relevant stuff. Yes, well, of course, this time she'll be saying, well, unfortunately, it's stuck in a port somewhere due to Brexit. <laughs> and due to the global steel shortage, we won't actually be able to build this orphanage for a couple of years. Do you know who uh, who did the American version? No, I didn't even know there was an American version. The Annika in their version was Erin Brockovich. Good Lord, that's extraordinary. That's a great piece of trivia. Now, Justin, do you own any NFTs? <laughs> Almost certainly, but I wouldn't know if I did. Well, these are the new cryptocurrency-based assets, digital assets that people have. And one of them is called the Board Ape Yacht Club, which is sort of basically pictures of these, these ape-like cartoon character type things. And Seth Green, the actor, 
has set up a cartoon series which uses one of his NFT board apes right. as a major character. He just imagines that this ape is, is like a barman in a fictional location. Just And when you say board ape, you mean an ape that's bored, not... A bored-looking ape, A bored-looking yeah. ape, great. Yeah, yeah. not a, an ape that's on a surfboard or anything, no. <laughs> However, slight issue. A few days before this series was due to be released, uh, someone basically managed to hack into his account and fool him into transferring this NFT to somebody else. And that then that somebody else sold it to somebody else. And so therefore he no longer owns this board ape anymore. So that means that they're not allowed to broadcast the TV series anymore because he doesn't actually own that character. That is extraordinary. The entire series has had to be put on hold. And as of time of recording, there's no indication that the person that's kind of ended up with this ape character had any indication of um, giving it back or, or selling it back to him. So there's nothing they can do about it. That's incredible. I mean, you know, this whole thing, from what you say, is going to change the world of intellectual property. Because who, you know, if if the intellectual property of that bored ape is contained within that nft and that nft is commercialized in that way then you know it could affect a whole whole range of stuff and i imagine mickey mouse one day being lost by disney Mm. (laughs) and suddenly they just got to close all of their parks and paint it out or like turn it into (laughs) into a rat or something it's (laughs) that's extraordinary well, going back to the more tangible, Love Island have announced that for the next series, they're going to dress their contestants in second-hand clothes. So this follows criticism they've had in the past for promoting fast fashion by using sponsors like Misguided and I Saw It First. Um, now what they've done is they've partnered up with eBay UK, so the contestants will wear a mix of new and pre-loved clothing. And instead of being able to buy the same clothes that you see the contestants wearing, which you could previously just press a button, go straight to the retailer's website and buy their clothes, this time there'll be a a tab called Shop the Look, which will take you to eBay, where you'll find similar items that are on sale on eBay. That's a good idea, actually. Do you think we should start doing that? If people want to buy your your cap, <laughs> should, should we put a link in the show notes? I think so. I think from now on, if people could see what we're dressed when we do these podcasts, <laughs> perhaps... At least you've got clothes on this week. True. Um, what I think might be interesting is that eBay being an auction-based site, of course, how does that work in terms of thousands of people wanting to buy these similar items? Well, maybe there'll be like a run on, on like yellow polo neck T-shirts or something. Mm. It's, it's sort mm. of like, I mean, they become the new NFTs. Yeah. Non-fungible T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Non-findable T-shirts. <laughs> Very good. And now it's time for our on-location interview. Earlier this month, Justin was in Copenhagen, taking pictures from participants in a creator's masterclass devised and run by Danish production house Loud People. He was working with an old friend and colleague, Pierre Marcar, and he managed to record this interview with Pierre about her varied career, including Race to Mars and commissioning the very first Survivor. But first, they discuss the lyrics board, a format that you may not have heard of, but one that's been successfully replicated in 25 countries.
Okay, so I'm here in Copenhagen with my friend Pierre Marcon, who is a television consultant and has played many different roles in TV over the years. She's been a commissioning editor, she's been a producer, been a writer, and we're here to talk about two or three of the shows that she's been involved with over the years. So the first one that I wanted to talk to you about, Pierre, was the lyrics board. Mm-hmm. Some of our listeners will be familiar with it, but uh, tell us what the, what the premise of the show is. You have two piano players who is up against each other in each show. Each piano player have two co-contestants, which are singers or performers. And what they get is they get a line of the lyrics. And in each round, they get one word. And then they have to come up with a tune around that word. So it's a sing-along program in principle. Okay, so there could be any song or are they trying to identify a particular song? They're trying to, at the end, figure out what this dum-dum-dum-dum-dum they have standing there is. Okay. They sing different tunes that has that one word in and eventually they'll get it, right? In getting there, they're singing songs with different words every time, so it's very much a sing-along happy program and and then they finally get that lyrics for that one song, and then they go on. So they're okay. different rounds and different things. So how did you come to get involved with the show? Was it a show that you originated? I had done the biggest failure in my life on Swedish television. What was that called? <laughs> I was a new boss of uh, Swedish entertainment programming, and I thought I should do something really brave and new. So I found that there was now possibility of doing animated hosts. So I bought this technology and did an animated dog. Okay. (laughs) I know how much you love dogs. Who was a co-host together with a famous host. So the whole idea is that there is somebody standing in the back room and answering and moving with this dog. (laughs) It was an absolute disaster and it didn't work on any level. So after a few programs, I was called into the big boss and said, what are we going to do? And I went away sweating and said, what am I going to (laughs) do? And I recall that when I had worked at RTE as a consultant some years before, I'd seen this afternoon program that was called The Lyrics Board, which was a half-hour nice show. Sweden is a big sing-along. They have choirs. They all they love singing. Each little little town has a choir, and it's a big thing, so I thought this will fit in nicely here. So I got hold of the production company and Andy. Andy Roway. Yeah, who owned the show and who had invented it originally, and said, is that possible? And he said, yeah, let's look at it. And I got hold of the biggest production company in Sweden, Vigelius Film at that time, and said, you have to help me, and it has to go really, really fast, because this other show is going off the air very, very soon. So we developed it into a one-hour program, a one-hour primetime program, so a much bigger and with a bigger set. And we got it to air very, very fast with quite a famous host and two great piano players. And it, it's still the biggest hit that they've had on Swedish television. Really, wow. So this was, what, 1997? Yeah, I think so. I think when we were in mid-last, we, I met with Andy, and I think there was about to be the 20th anniversary yeah. and he is very he loves me because he owned the pro- I didn't know anything Swedish television just yeah. bought it yeah but I think it's been sold to I don't know how many territories yes it's been remade 20. all over the world yes and uh, it's one of those unsung formats I quite often mention it to people and say 
do you know about this show? This mm-hmm. format's been sold all over the world and they've heard of, you know, X Factor and they've heard of Got Talent and they've heard of this, that and the other mm-hmm. and, and they've never heard of it. And yes, it's actually been tremendously successful. And as you say, mm. the idea of a sing-along show is universal, really. Yeah. yeah. it's terrific. So let's talk about another show, Race to Mars. Mm-hmm. So I think by this point you were in Canada. Mm-hmm. I was actually... Uh working with development for CBC. But then a friend of mine, Phyllis Platt, got into a huge problem in Montreal because her creative producer, very sadly, was killed in a car accident. So she called me and said, Pia, you got to help. And she had already called my boss at CBC and said, I need help. So they freed me up to move to Montreal to help her. The premise of the series is to do the first astronaut travel to Mars. And since that hasn't done, been done before, or not yet, it was still had to be a science factual series because it was actually the first drama production that Discovery ever commissioned. So when we built the script, we actually had to do all of the research so that the science was correct. So, for instance, just to figure out, which is one of the big discussions, if you have to send a spaceship up, is whether it's going to be zero gravity or not. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't do zero gravity, if you don't create zero gravity, it's very, very hard on the body. You've probably heard the stories about astronauts coming down and basically they can't walk. Mm-hmm. It takes about a year to get up and a year to go back. So one of the big discussions is whether you create zero gravity, which you do by having the spaceship spin. Yeah, it's a centrifugal or centripetal uh, force. Yeah. So we did a huge amount of research and talked with all of the great astronauts across. The, we had an advisory board of the best astronauts in the world to figure out what would the right science be. We ended up with zero gravity, thank God, because if not, we would have to have a whole series of people <laughs> hanging, hanging from, from wires, wires. Yeah. which probably would not have been good for the budget either. So, So we were very happy with that decision. Mission control is a very interesting place, but it turned out with our budget, we would not be able to do. Right. Although they know we wanted to be in their homes and see the astronaut family. And so finally, when we were sitting with, them, as we all do at some point, the budget issue, what are we going to do? We actually figured out, and I think I actually suggested it, what if we just made everything in the spaceship so we were never on Earth? Everything on Earth happened on a screen. Right. which means that you had just face pictures of mm. when they talked to their families or of mission control. So we didn't need to build any sets. Right, right. That's so the fair. only set we had to build was the spaceship. Mm. And there's more from Pierre later in the show. But now it's time for us all to do a little quiz about television dilemmas. In television, the role of the executive producer is to ensure that everyone else can get on with the job of actually making the programme. But sometimes unexpected events crop up that stop that from happening. The entire crew turns to the executive producer and asks, what the heck do we do now? Well, this quiz is all about those kind of moments. I'm going to describe some production dilemmas 
and Justin's going to play the role of the executive producer and explain what he might do in the situation concerned. Really? It's the first I've heard of this. <laughs> now, there's no right answers as such, so we're not scoring any points, so don't worry about that front, okay? Okay. However, these events are somewhat based on, on real things that I've seen happen before, so I can explain what we decided to do in the actual scenario. So here is a dilemma for you. A director is lined up to shoot for three weeks on the first series of a new show that you're shooting next month. However, the production manager has only just passed on an email where it transpires that the director can't do the fourth day of the filming block due to another job that she can't get out of. However, the vision mixer has worked with that director a lot before and has been a multi-camera director in the past and they are happy to fill in for that one day. So do you take up the vision mixer's offer to fill in? Do you hire a different director for the missing day? Or do you pull rank and insist that the director does your show as a priority and sack them if they refuse? Wow, that is an interesting one. Well, the job of the executive producer is to ensure that what the production team do delivers to the broadcaster what they expect fundamentally. So the EP sits in that space in between. My instinct would be, first of all, to check the contract with the director, because if the director had actually signed a contract to the effect that they were available for all recordings, then I probably would insist on enforcing that. Yeah, basically, let's say that it's just been a bit of an administrative problem. They did flag up that they weren't available for that day, and that sort of message has got a bit lost in the mix, and you've only been told about it now. Um, Another factor is that increasingly these days the first episode of big series or first couple of episodes are directed by a big name very experienced director but production companies can't always afford to have them for the full run so it is not uncommon to have these kind of feature directors come in set the template get the thing on it on the road leave notes and then pass it on to somebody else But honestly, I think in that circumstance, I would then replace them with an experienced director. Well, what actually happened in this scenario was because the vision mixer had worked with the director before, it was felt that there would be more chance for the vision mixer to see what had happened on the previous three days and therefore be able to replicate it themselves on on the fourth day. Whereas if you brought in somebody brand new, they would either have a bit more friction between what they wanted to do and what the previous director had done. And they might even have to come in a day before to sort of learn everything else. Yes, fair enough. But that is sort of what I was assuming, actually, because in this scenario I was describing where the big name director hands over to somebody else, it's quite normal for the second director to come in for a day and and watch what they do before they take over so they don't just take over from notes and they don't they're not there to bring their own style to it but that was quite an unusual scenario that we Mm. had the luxury of a vision mixer that happened to be their own multi-camera director Mm. Mm. normally you you wouldn't have that scenario Mm. i don't think okay here's another dilemma you're shooting on location but there's been a series of delays during today's shoot The contestants are families that include children and there's strict legal limits about how much time they're allowed to spend on camera. You've actually run out of time just as you're about to film the final part of the show. So do you keep shooting regardless and hope no one says anything? Do you ask the family to stay longer 
or do you end filming now and try and do an early start to finish the rest of the show tomorrow? I think this is a bit of a no-brainer because there are, as you say, very, very strict limits about how much time you can spend filming children. Uh, It's particularly bad during term time where you've also got to provide tutors and all sorts of things like that and you have to have chaperones as well so you'd need to ensure that your chaperones were also prepared to run over. So I think I've got two answers. The first of which is that the most likely answer would be that you stop and you carry on the next morning but I would first ask the chaperone if it were possible to run over and I would be guided by what they said. Hmm. Well, that's pretty much what happens in the scenario that I remember. It would have been quite a big faff for the family to stay overnight and then come back the next morning and it would have caused them significant disruption, maybe even an extra day off school for the kids, I, I can't remember. So what happened was they were asked if if they wouldn't mind just staying on for the extra round and if they said no, then that would, would have been fine. Mm. We, they would have stopped. But in this scenario, they said actually it would suit us as well if we could just get it done today and we don't mind bending the rules somewhat. Yeah. No, I can understand that, but I think going through the chaperones who represent the local council would would actually be the better thing to do. I had a similar situation where I was doing a kids reality show with kids on a living on a spaceship in Acton, obviously, and one of my contestants was sick because he'd eaten way too much pizza the day before. And uh, so the chaperone said he wasn't available for filming that day and we needed to carry on. So I said to the chaperones, okay, can I have him for like 10 minutes? Because I can get the carpenters to build me a sick bay on my spaceship. And if I could pop David, the boy, into sick bay and do a quick shoot then we can tell viewers that David is suffering from space sickness and will be in sick bay today. Mm. And they did agree to that, and that's what we filmed, and that's what we put out. <laughs> and here's a final one. So you're filming the penultimate show of a 40-episode order for a quiz, but one of the contestants raises an alarm because they've noticed that if they lean in their seat in a certain way, they can see a reflection in the set's glass that allows them to see a video screen which shows some of the questions' answers. You can't be sure whether any other contestants on the previous episodes have noticed the same thing, and there's no surefire way of finding out. So, do you fix the reflection problem now, but broadcast the series anyway as planned? Do you tell the channel and hope that they'll be okay with it? Or do you offer to reshoot the entire series again, probably at the production company's own cost? That is a tough one. Well, I certainly wouldn't try and get away with it. Really, as we've discussed previously on TV Show and Tell, fairness in a game show, particularly if there's big money involved, has to be paramount. And I think that I would certainly go and tell the channel about it. Um, I would wait to see what their verdict was, because they would consult their own lawyers, and it would be their own lawyer's verdict that ultimately counted. But if the lawyers said, no, I'm sorry, you've got to reshoot the series again, then that's what I'd have to do. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, This was a show called Perfection, which was a BBC Two quiz show. And to their credit, the production company 
went well. You know, we can't be sure that anyone's cheated or not. Mm. There's no way of finding out. So we will just pay for everybody to come back and redo the entire series again. Yeah. And that's what they did. And they actually got, you know, a second, third, fourth series off the back of that. So thankfully, yeah. you know, by setting up the brand in the proper way, it paid off in the long run. But uh, yeah. yeah, that was quite a, an honourable decision they made. Well, it's a good decision as well. And it's good for the industry. And, you know, it relates back to our friend Olivia, who was on the show a, a few episodes ago about the importance of nailing things down in the first place but it is it is so easy these things are so easy to happen and the assumption that we have that contestants understand a television studio and will behave like we behave in a television studio is very dangerous so we have to remember that it's an alien environment and also that people want to win i did a series that a reality series in canada where we had a secret location but we were casting Canada's greatest know-it-alls. And Canada's greatest know-it-alls, it took them about a day to find out where the location was. You know, they rang up all the production companies, they rang up all the camera equipment, all the lighting equipment people, and managed to find out where the show was being made. Wow. And on the first day, they managed to get hold of scripts and so on and so on and so on. And very quickly, we had to absolutely close the whole thing down. Amazing. Because they were there to win, to be fair to them. That was their job. We picked people who, who were very smart and very, very competitive. And so they set out to win. So we had to compete with them to make sure that the show was absolutely fair, which we did. I might change my password on my computer after this interview. I think. <laughs> <laughs> And now we're going back to Justin's interview with Danish TV executive Pierre Marcar. Here, they discuss Pierre's role in bringing the format that eventually became Survivor to our screens. I was head of Swedish television, and as I said, I was brought in from outside. It was quite unusual, and being a Danish person in, in Sweden is not the most obvious thing to I can say that's a Scandinavian thing. And I was brought in to try and renew, renew entertainment and try and see if we can do things differently. And, and at that point, for many years, they had successfully on Friday and Saturday nights done a studio variety show. So a bit of talk, a bit of gimmicks, performance with uh, big stars, Tina Turner, Rod Stewart. We had all the big names in from the audience in the corner, and everybody was happy, and that was the same thing. And Swedish, Sweden is a very small country, so the celebrities, you saw the same people 12 Saturdays each year, and I thought, okay, what is it? what would the opposite be? So I made some criterias for my people who were both in development and looking for shows, which was it had to be out of the studio, it had to be real people, and uh, people have to in kind of a fantasy. There has to be something fabulous, amazing about it, adventure. So that was pretty much what they were asked to go and look for. And then my deputy at the department uh, went to MIP. I tend not to go to those things if I can <laughs> if I can send somebody else. <laughs> so he was sent there and then after a couple of days he called and said, I think I think I'm talking with somebody here who's got exactly what we've been looking for for the last year or so. And that he was talking with Strix, which was a little interesting because it is a Swedish company he was meeting with. 
But Strix at that point had talked with Planet 24 in Britain. Which was? Which was Bob Geldorf's company together with Charlie Parsons. And at that time, they were in the middle of doing the Big Breakfast, which was a huge success. Mm. I mean, you probably remember it. It was a very, very interesting take on breakfast television. (laughs) Very well done. And they had this concept called The Survivor. So uh, he came back with it, and we looked at it, and we said yes. And uh, we talked with Planet 24. We talked with Gary Carter, and he was in contact with Strix. So that's Mm. when I know Gary from that first thing. And I actually went over and saw the big breakfast being made, met with Charlie. And we we decided to try and have a go at doing it. And I got an extra budget, which I needed, because it was over budget from what Swedish television would usually do. Mm. And going out of the studio. And we made a contract together with Planet 24 where we actually developed it together with them. So we put a team together of some of their people and some of SVT people and put them together in a room to especially develop all the games. Mm, all the challenges and things. Yeah, yeah, they pretty much had the structure of the program, which was supposed to be a social experiment. Mm. They had done a one-off of that kind where it was very much about trying to figure out how does society develop that was the social experiment. Okay. And what we did the first time in Sweden was that we made a replica of Swedish society. So there was an old person and a young person, well-off person, poor person, and somebody from rural area, town area, immigrant. The contestants mm-hmm. had to reflect society. Mm-hmm. So that was the whole idea, to see if you put this together, how is it going to develop? Who's going to take over? The game was a social experiment. Oh, it ended up being plants with poops, as I say, <laughs> running around on a beach. But it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't the original intention. So we yes, and we spent some time, and we found an island outside of Malaysia, which was there was no flyover flights. There was not a lot of cruise ships coming around. Right. So it was very difficult to find the location. Now, I was interested in that because around Sweden there are lots of islands. <laughs> so I was wondering why you chose an island so far away. Because one of the targets I've had was it had to be exotic and fabulous and fantastic. Right. And to us, a palm island with big white beaches is what that mm. is, right? So to get, and that's also why we came up with the name of Expedition Robinson because it's the Robinson Crusoe myth. What would it be like to land on this fabulously beautiful deserted bounty land island, right? Right. We didn't want to be in a cold, bleak Sweden. So we found Tenka, as the island was called, which was very good because there was a bigger island close to where we could live with the crew and then go back and forth. So they weren't literally on a deserted island, but people could go back and forth in a boat. So how did, how did apart from the social experiment part of it, I mean... Were the way other ways in which the original series differs from how it evolved? When we we started shooting, and we actually still had to develop some of the challenges on on the island because everything was new to us. We'd mm. never tried it before. <clears throat> we also brought in Happy Sweet to the island, which was new technology at the time, but it was great that it was possible to buy it. But bring a small suite so we could start editing on spot because I said we can't just go down there for I mean seven weeks and shoot and then come I mean each episode is three days right and then come back and discover we're missing something it's hard to do a pickup so um but you had things like the tribal council and they were already part of yeah we had the tribal council definitely yeah and we had the uh, 
the challenges and the when where they were building and the whole structure of how they divided into teams and then put together. All of that was there. Yeah. What wasn't there was these sites where they talked directly to camera. What some people call testimonials mm-hmm. or confessionals or talking heads, where after something that's happened, we gather some people together or an individual, and we ask them to describe, often using the present tense, something that's happened in the mm-hmm. past. Now, as I understand it, this is something that evolved mm-hmm. during Expedition Robinson. Yes. Yeah, and at first we figured out that when we started editing that we actually needed to hear more from them of what they were thinking. So then we built a little bamboo booth where they could basically go in whenever they wanted and turn off a camera on a camera themselves and talk about things, right? So in the beginning, it was sort of like, okay, we need to have some breathing space because seeing people doing something all the time without really knowing what they were doing it for didn't make a lot of sense. So we started getting these diary things. We, we said to them, it's like a diary, go in and say what you're feeling. So they walked in and talked a bit about it's been hot today and I'm super hungry and he's irritating and whatever. And then we started to see we got some really good footage that could be used when we edited. And then we started asking them to try and explain what they had done. So what actually these testimonials does in editing is that you have you have an event, a challenge or an island council. But if you then have people afterward explaining what they went through, you suddenly get the understanding of what you're seeing happening in the picture. Because seeing people, two people running on the beach or seeing two people sitting there and wondering who they're going to vote for is not dramatic. But if at the same time you either cut to or you hear the voice of somebody saying, oh, when I was sitting in that aisle, I was sure it was going to be me who was going to be voted off. So you cut to him and you cut to him saying that and suddenly dramatic tension. I think it's being used after that more and more because it's very hard with real people. First of all, they don't speak in lines, so it's an enormous edit if you have to just shoot what they do and then try and get it into something. But if you can use their own explanation of what they were thinking and doing as the narrative, you can cut it and get the drama. Yeah, and move the story along and quickly. And move the story forward. And these testimonials also were in order to deal with the fact that you couldn't have cameras all over the island. We actually had crews there, right? So we had a a number of crews that would go back and forth and exchange each other. At that time, you have to remember, we're talking like 25 years ago, we didn't have mobile phones with good cameras. We didn't run around with small cameras. There was no GoPros. There was nothing. So pretty much what we did had to be shot. So it's limited. You might not be there when that exciting thing is happening or when they are quarreling about something, right? So, yes, it does replace some of the footage that we didn't get. Mm. The only other thing I always found a bit fascinating was that um, ABC actually owned this (laughs) before us and before CBS ended up doing it after with Mark Burnett. And they had been sitting on it for quite a while and had actually found an island outside of Florida where they were going to do it. But when they went through everything, they figured out it was just too difficult and risky to do all of that paperwork that needed to be done because of putting people on a deserted island and snake bites and whatever. So they decided to give it up, and that's why Charlie Parsons was trying to then put it on the market again. We were a very small country, but I think he was just happy that somebody finally was brave enough and stupid enough maybe to say, well, we're going to try and do it, right? Mm. 
And then afterwards, after we had done it, then it was much easier for them to go out and get sold wild. And I've always been thinking about the poor commissioner of ABC. <laughs> Who said no? What happened to it? <laughs> yes, they never, they never got it after. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, that's a great story. Thank you. So for a number of years, you've been working in Vietnam, advising broadcasters on what sort of programs to make and helping to train mm. people out there. Could you tell us a little bit about you know, what Vietnamese television is like, mm. what kind of entertainment, what kind of programming? It's mm-hmm. really interesting to have a window into a different part of the TV world. Vietnam is a socialist country. It's a one-station country still. So there is only VTV, Vietnam television, which is state-owned. It has got a number of channels, I think right now nine, it varies a bit. So an entertainment channel, which is VTV3, VTV1, which is basically news, and then the children's channel, science, and youth. But it's all within VTV. When I asked them first time, what's your main competition then? Because that's what we work a lot with, the military channel. Because the military has their own little channel with military programs. Nice. So that's their main competition. It was when I started working there a number of years ago. And what, what is a military program? Well, actually, I can tell you that one of the programs I was asked to help with in the beginning is their Friday night, 8 o'clock, very, very popular program, which is called We Are Soldiers, which is a program about the army. An entertainment program. <laughs> so you go around to different military compounds and the soldiers will up on stage do different athletics movements and constellations and a lot of military personnel be in the audience and clapmakers. <laughs> and it's That's one hour every Friday night. It's been on for many years and it's very, very popular. Yeah. And one thing they asked me when I got brief on this and they said, and we would really like to see other military programs from other countries. <laughs> and I, that was very hard to find. Right. There right. are some in the States. Yes, there, there are some. Is a I, mili- say, I there found, are a I some, yeah. finally found a military channel and I could show them a bit of a different way of doing military programs. Mm. I mean, I actually come from Danish television and I'm so old that we were a one state channel. I mean, the mm. DR was the only one when I was young. But nowadays it's very unusual, right? And it is more and more difficult for them because, of course, young people are starting to to bypass whatever and they do watch things on Netflix. Some of them have satellites and there's Disney and the young people. So it's getting harder and harder for them to actually keep their place in the market because Mm. now people are seeing what television could be. Not in the countryside. The countryside, they basically still have only VTV1 and VTV3. But in all of the biggest cities. So it's, so they're really struggling. Mm. And what they've done is to buy a lot of the formats we know, The Voice, Dragonstein, a lot of game shows or whatever. And then it's production companies that buys the format, yeah. sells it into VTV, produces it for them, and it's put on air. Great. Okay. So they don't have a lot of say in it themselves. It's basically a few production, very few big production companies that sit mm. on that market. And then... Uh, then they still produce something themselves, but it's very hard. They, they don't know how to do it. And that's where you come in. Well, then I try and help them both with their own programming. I mean, they also have a farm program in prime time still, right? Sure. Well, I mean, we, but we see this in the, you know, many parts of the mm-hmm. world. I mean, farmers, what farmer wants a mm-hmm. wife is something that's been remade all over the world and often 
people forget that there's huge parts of the world that are still rural and agricultural mm-hmm. and this is their life and this this is how they see their lives reflected on screen. So, so that, but that's important. exactly what they need to hear or see is farmer wants a wife because they don't know that program. Mm. So they actually do a farm program. They right. have a farmer walk around in their field and sure. showing how this leaf has gotten this much bigger for one and a half hour in prime time. But what they, of course, need and what they're looking for is trying to figure out, is there another way of doing that content sure. in a more interesting way? Yeah, I remember being in Yaoning in China and being pitched a entire series about cabbages. That would fly very well in <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> exactly. I always remember the first one was, which I decided would be the title of my autobiography, which is The Cabbages of Chernobyl. <laughs> so it's a fascinating country. And I think, what was it like when we changed it around 20 years ago? Oh, yeah. What was it that we were had to do at that time when we went from basically just doing documentary? Yeah. And of course, they're going through a much faster transition because, as you say, they're going from state television to Disney, Discovery, Netflix and whatever, all in one jump, whereas at least we evolved as television evolved. And so it's it's a huge turnaround. Well, Pia, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to come back to you shortly. But for now, thanks for telling us about your life and the extraordinary things that you've done. And Pia will be back to show and tell us something later in the show. But this next segment, Justin, has been prompted by an email that I've just received. Okay. So it's an advert for a Royal Television Society conference. And there's a number of channel commissioners who are going to be there. And if you want to attend this one-day conference, it will cost me £800 plus VAT. Wow. For one day? For one day, yes. And it's always slightly knocked me that you know channel commissioners who are there to be facilitators for getting the best ideas to their channel, they go to these effectively commercial events so that they can say what their shopping list of wants and needs for their channel is going to be. Hmm. Well, it is true that most conferences and festivals and markets, part of the appeal that they charge people for is access to commissioning editors and that happens all the time and has happened for a very long time. The commissioning editors usually are on a panel on stage and they are there to do the what am I looking for, what does the commissioner want session. Having said that, I've never found any of them particularly useful because it is a you know, it's a mass audience, it's a mass appeal. So generally speaking, they say, well, this is what our channel does, which you should know. We want something that's commercially, going to be commercially incredibly successful, but also win us a great deal of awards for its quality. Well, big surprise there. So I go to these things when I'm at markets and, and conferences. I write everything down. I can't honestly say I've ever used any of it, but... You know, as I said, it's part of what sells these events. Ideally, you'd think that the commissioning information should be something that's openly available for anyone to, let's say, download from the commissioning area of their websites. But unfortunately, not many channels have a commissioning area of their website. And even if they do, quite often it's the information's pretty out of date. They seem to sort of um, update it really very sporadically. What you're really there for is to talk to them afterwards. 
that's a general appeal that when someone has finished on stage, they come off stage, they have their microphone taken off. There's usually a little queue of people who want to chat to hand over your business card and things. So, you know, access, generally speaking, isn't just for that moment where they're on stage where you might as well watch them on the video two weeks later. It is about having a potential opportunity to to get in their face uh, introduce yourself and ask for some kind of follow-up. I mean, what are the do's and don'ts of, of those social interactions? Because there have been some horror stories, haven't there, of like a commissioner goes into the urinals or whatever and the person's sort of two, <laughs> two urinals down and goes, oh, hello there. By the way, I've got this idea for... A... <laughs> I'm afraid that does happen. I, I know somebody who booked themselves on a seat on a plane to MIP next to the controller of BBC One. Um, and proceeded to talk about his shows the whole way there. (laughs) Equally, I took part in a commissioning event in Denmark many years ago, and I was on the same flight as a a commissioning editor from ITV. So I went over to him and had coffee beforehand and said hello, and he said, so just to be clear, on the flight I'm going to read a book, and I'm not going to speak to you. (laughs) So that was a great start. Uh, <laughs> given that we were going to spend three days with each other. But, uh, you know, I guess perhaps by that point he just had enough of people chasing you down. Yeah, what are the do's and don'ts? I suppose the truth is that you've just got to understand where they are, why they're there. I think the most you can expect to do is to register your presence. So, you know, what you're looking for is an opportunity to meet them in some other environment. This is not an environment to pitch, okay? It really isn't. It's an environment in which to say hello, register your presence, so that when you send a follow-up email a few days later or a week later, you can say, you may remember that we met at X. And I think from a from a networking point of view, that's probably the best you can hope to achieve. And if you have listened to what they've said, then again, you can pick up on that. You know, the best kind of pitches reflect back to people the words that they used. And I always find it fascinating that when you do that, they never recognize that you're just repeating their words. They just think, oh, I agree with that. (laughs) So, you know, just picking up a couple of the phrases that they used in their presentation in your follow-up email will make it a more acceptable, more they'll be more receptive to what you've written, perhaps. Yeah, I think for me, the thing is to not not come across as too intense and just try and present yourself as being a fun person to work with. Hmm. And then that, that will go a long way. Yes, and I think the other thing with networking generally is that you have to remember that it's a commercial conversation. One of the reasons that people feel embarrassed, particularly Brits feel embarrassed about networking, is the idea that you're sort of there to sell yourself in some way and that's fake and and so on. But basically anybody who's in a networking situation is there to do that. So the person that you're talking to is also trying to figure out whether you've got something for them or they've got something for you. And the simplest thing to do is just to acknowledge that and, and be open about it and, and say, you know, effectively, you know, this is who I am, this is what I do, I'd like to know a bit more about you. And then if you find some common ground, then that's, that's pleasing for both of you. And to your point, this is also where you discover if it's someone you'd actually like to work with. When I started the format people with my partner back in 2009, our number one rule was we don't want to work with assholes Because to be honest, 
television is supposed to be fun. We don't make a huge amount of money, but we do work in a fun, entertaining industry. And working with people you don't like and you don't trust is just a waste of time. And the worst thing that can happen is that you get a commission or you, you get a job and you're working with someone you don't like and it goes well, in which case you've got to work with them even more. So I think it's a really good opportunity. And, and a lot of the people I work with now are people that I met very, very briefly socially on the Quisette in Cannes or at an event in London or through a friend where we had some sort of connection. And it's taken several years to get from that point to the point where, where we both had a common need that would be met by us working together. But then when we did work together, it was a real pleasure. So just checking, does that mean that I'm officially not an arsehole? <laughs> you are absolutely and officially not an arsehole and never have been dated. Excellent news. Now we're going back to Copenhagen and Pierre Makar has something to show and tell Justin. So, Pia, we ask all our guests to bring something to show and tell. It can be any kind of object, virtual or real, that says something about some aspect of your career in television. So what have you brought us today? Well, my Mac I carry around in a felt cover mm -hmm. because I've spent quite a lot of time, I think in total one and a half years or something in Mongolia over the last 10 years which because, is where we met. because as part of the format people and working with you and Michelle and other we were brought to Mongolia you were there and you brought me in and it's a and it's been an amazing place to go and work with television reinventing a channel for Miss Norman Chinpat there which has been fascinating indeed i really love being there it's such a different country i mean not only is their television different it's getting to look more like ours now <laughs> yeah. because of us because of us yes <laughs> so now, cultural now invaders that we are <laughs> it's less different now than it was 10 years ago where they also had these very long sentences remember that oh god yes I we do. actually measured that when question could be five minutes long and then the answer seven yeah. so that's it's very good for the interviewer because you need to come in with two two questions for a half hour program <laughs> i've been spending quite a lot of times out in their gears which is what they call the yurt those big round felt tents that people outside but also inside town actually live, live mm -hmm. in and those gears is uh, made of felt a very thick kind of felt and uh, I discovered that they make a lot of other things from that too. Okay. And now they're trying to make a bit of an industry out of it. So they make very nice felt things that they're trying to sell to tourists because they're trying to figure out how to make money. Mm. And this beautiful thing I saw in the store and I actually thought, oh, I should try and export them and help them with it. So I found the two women who made it. And I did try and figure out, but I, I'm not good at that kind of thing, unfortunately. <laughs> but I bought a couple of them and I'm it's still, and it really is an amazing thing. And somebody should sell it around the world. I've had it now for 86, eight years. It sits, as you can see, completely new. There is not yeah, one thing beautiful. that's broken. It's amazing. So just describe it to us for our Well, the, the, it's, it's really gray felt like your old woolen socks. I mean, it has the same color as when yeah. we made wool because it's made of, of very 
condensed pressed wool and it's just sewn together and I don't know how they're able to make the sewing so so it never breaks. It hasn't gone up and then there's a, a ribbon across it that holds the little flap. That's the same kind of ribbon they have on their big coats when they ride. So they have these very colorful yellow, red, shiny bands on. And that color relates to the national colors? Or? Yeah, it's the sun symbol, right? It's, it's the country of the eternal sun because it's I think it's the country in the world where they have an average of 340 days of sunshine a year. Then right. it's called the blue sky country, it's also called. Blue sky country, that's yeah. right, yeah. So your Mac symbol of modern technology sits inside the felt cover made by women in Mongolia mm-hmm. that represents the material used to build their traditional uh-huh. gears. That's a great story. Pia Makar, thank you very much. And we're very grateful to Pia for taking the time to offer that interview. I hope you found it illuminating. Uh, talking of executive producers earlier, Justin, was there a time when an executive producer helped to put out a fire of something that you were working on? I was doing a hidden camera show for the Learning Channel, cast a very well-known British comedian to do the voiceover. And when he arrived, he was in a very bad mood. He decided in the car, which was the first time that he'd actually looked at the script, that he wasn't the right person for it. He didn't suit his style of comedy. And he was very, very stroppy. And I really didn't know what to do. So I reached for my executive producer. My executive producer came down to the sound editing room and said to the well-known comedian, "Um, I completely understand Obviously, there's been a mix-up. We're very happy to pay you your fee for the day, and we'll get you a car to take you home, which totally disarmed him, (laughs) at which point he said, well, I'm here now, so I suppose I better do it. So he then did the first about 10 minutes in a very stroppy, grumpy voice, and he gradually warmed up as the day went on. And at the end of the day, my EP came back and said, so... I think the first half hour is a little bit ropey. Do you mind doing it again? And he went, yeah, no, I was I was in a bad mood. Yeah, of course I'll do it again. So that was an example where we were all ready to go. We had this very famous person in the room and we reached out to the EP and he did his thing, for which I've always been grateful. And finally, it's time for Fakal Format. And this time it is my turn to offer two fantastic pieces of programming to Justin. The thing is, one of them I have made up. And today I have gone for two formats that perhaps were on BBC Three. Well, that's great because I'm the sort of the key target audience for that. So. <laughs> so the first one is called Tiger Takes on Slow Walking. Actor Tiger Drew Honey travels to the Californian town of Fresno, where some residents have developed a cult for walking as slowly as possible as a reaction against the pace of modern life. He's then challenged to walk a 200-mile journey to San Jose in 100 hours. That's the first one. The second one is My Life as an Animal. In each episode, two volunteers spend four days with a different species of animal, living the life that they would live in an attempt to be accepted by the animals. So, for example, uh, they might sleep among pigs, eat like pigs, and even learn to speak like pigs. Uh, They're guided by the wildlife expert, 
Terry Nutkins as he shows them their entire life cycle. So that is Tiger Takes on Slow Walking or My Life as an Animal. Wow. Okay, well, I think you've floored me on this one. Um, the second one certainly sounds more likely. There have been a number of formats that involve mimicking animal life. I worked on the development of a series called Animal Attraction, which was about people using the methods of animals to attract a mate. So it does sound plausible. Um, the other one sounds so utterly implausible <laughs> that uh, it tempts me to being correct. So I remember Tiger Drew Honey had a career after being an outnumbered as a teenage television presenter. But I think I am going to go for my life as an animal. And that's my final answer. All right. We need a sting. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> and you would be correct. Ah. Now, I am grateful to my friend Jonathan Cresswell because he made up the other one. Because he has made a website where you can create your own BBC3 <laughs> TV titles at random. <laughs> so you just keep pressing refresh on this web page and uh, it comes up with different BBC3 formulaic commission ideas. That's very so you, can, you too can play your own version of Faker Format at home. We should probably do a box game for this. Or like, you know, there must be ways of marketing this, Justin. I know, I know. It feels like a, it does feel like the beginning of something, definitely. So there we are. That's it for this time. Do get in contact with the show using all the usual methods. We are at TV Show Podcast on Twitter, or you can email us via the address contact at tvshowandtell.com. But for now, that's it. I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggie. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs> <laughs>